It's Sunday evening, the 20th of August, 1989. In the TV room of their Beverly Hills mansion, Jose and Kitty share a quiet evening, watching television together and eating strawberries with cream. Their children, Lyle and Eric, are at the movies with their friends. Jose and Kitty fall asleep on the large, L-shaped sofa filled with soft cushions. On the back wall of the room, you can see a floor-to-ceiling bookcase packed with books. Sixteen shiny tennis trophies are showcased on the uppermost shelf, all first-placed, won over the years by Lyle and Eric. On the floor, you can see an expensive oriental carpet. In a corner, there is a large decorative chair and a floor lamp. Jose and Kitty's peaceful evening together will soon shatter into a nightmarish reality. At around 10 p.m., the French doors in the study room open slowly and their children slip into the house. Eric and Lyle are armed with shotguns. They walk down the hallway towards the television room located at the back of the house. The room is illuminated solely by the light emanating from the television screen. Jose is sleeping on the tan leather sofa with his legs stretched out on the coffee table in front of him. Kitty is sleeping peacefully under a blanket, her body stretched out across the sofa and her head in Jose's lap. Silently, they approach their sleeping parents. Two shots are fired at Jose. One pallet misses Jose and ends up shattering the glass of the French doors behind him. The next one hits Jose in the left elbow. One of the killers walks behind Jose. With trembling fingers, he takes aim at Jose's head and without thinking too much, he pulls the trigger. Blood goes everywhere. Jose dies instantly. Woken up by the noise, Kitty, in a desperate bid to escape the horrors unfolding before her eyes, tries to flee the scene. Lyle shoots her before she can go too far. Kitty drops to the floor. She is shot in the arm, chest and face. But the true horror lies in what comes next. Eric and Lyle briefly leave the room to refill their guns. They leave their mother injured on the floor, barely alive. The brothers come back shortly, and one of the killers raises his weapon and finishes the job by shooting his mom in the face. The room, once filled with love and laughter, is now filled with gun smoke. The luxurious oriental carpet is now stained a deep shade of red. The walls, once painted a neutral shade, now splattered with their parents' blood. The brothers, standing over the lifeless bodies of their parents, are in shock. Eric starts to cry uncontrollably. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all, but now is not the time to question their decision. Before they leave the crime scene to create an alibi, the brothers shoot their parents in the knees to make it seem like it is the work of the mob. The harrowing ordeal lasted mere minutes, but the consequences that followed 
hunted the brothers for the rest of their lives. Welcome to Dark Hour Chronicles. In this podcast, we will delve into the most infamous and thrilling true crime stories, be them solved or still shrouded in mystery. In part one of the Menendez brothers, murder in Beverly Hills, we will be covering the tragic murders of Kitty and Jose Menendez. Jose Enrique Menendez was born on the 6th of May 1994 in Havana, Cuba. He was the youngest child of Francisco Pepe Menendez and Maria Carlotta. Although his family was not rich by any means, their athlete accomplishments had earned him a place into the high society of Havana. His father was a well-known professional soccer player. After he retired, he opened his own accounting firm. His mother was a professional swimming athlete. She had won five gold medals at the 1935 Central American and Caribbean Olympic Games. Growing up, Jose was spoiled by his mother. He was never punished whenever he was doing something wrong. His mother, Maria, would often tell him that there was no need to listen to anyone because he was superior to others. As Jose's teenage years wore on, his reckless behavior showed no signs of diminishing. He was expelled from not one, but two prestigious grammar schools. His reputation suffered further when he was expelled from a prestigious swimming team, damaging his once promising athletic career. When Fidel Castro had taken over Cuba, Jose became an outspoken critic of the Castro regime. In 1960, Francisco and Maria sent their son to live with his aunt in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, to protect him from persecution by the Castro regime. The rest of the family followed soon. Despite being just 15 years old and unable to speak or understand English, Jose refused to let his circumstances dictate his future. He was determined to make it. He attended the local high school and got accepted into the swimming team, where he excelled. It took him some time, but he eventually became fluent in English. His relentless pursuit of excellence earned him an athletic scholarship to Southern Illinois University. While Jose attended the university, he met Mary Louise Anderson, known to her friends as Kitty. From the moment he laid eyes on her, her breathtaking beauty utterly captivated him and raised a sharp intellect. She was a straight-A student and had just won the Miss Oak Lawn beauty pageant. Kitty was born on the 14th of October 1941 in Oak Lawn, Illinois. She was the youngest child in a family of four kids. Her father, Charles Melton Anderson, was an army veteran and owned his own air conditioning business. Her mom, May Helen Anderson, was working in an airport. Charles was extremely abusive towards his kids and family. When Kitty was young, her father left the family for a younger woman. Following the divorce, her mother turned to alcohol to cope with the breakup. 
Kitty became convinced that divorce was the ultimate tragedy, a fate worse than death itself, and she vowed to never let it happen to her. She carried this fear with her throughout her life and drove her to strive for a perfect marriage and the perfect family. But little did she know that her quest for perfection would lead her down a path that was far from perfect. After she graduated from her local high school, Kitty attended Southern Illinois University. She was a communications major. Kitty dreamed of a career in producing and directing commercial radio and TV programs in the bustling city of New York. In her senior year, she participated in the Miss Oklahoma Beauty Contest and won first place. During her final year at university, Kitty met Jose Menendez. The pair were infatuated with each other, but their friends and families were not happy with Kitty's and Jose's relationship. Both families had reservations about their relationships due to cultural and social differences. In 1963, shortly after they began dating and after Kitty graduated from college, they traveled to New York and eloped. After they got married, Jose and Kitty were struggling financially. They lived with Jose's family for a short while. Jose gave up his athletic scholarship at Southern Illinois University and decided to transfer to Queens College. In order to support Jose in his career, Kitty got a job as a teacher in the Bronx, putting her dreams of working in broadcasting on hold. The couple seemed to be happy and in love in the first years of their marriage. In 1967, Jose graduated from Queens College with an accounting degree. He went on to work as an accountant for an international accounting firm. The following year, on the 10th of January 1968, their first son was born. They named him Joseph Lyle Menendez. At Jose's demands, Kitty becomes a stay-at-home mom. Their second son, Eric Galen Menendez, was born on the 27th of November 1970. In the mid-80s, Jose started an executive job at RCA Records, and moved the family to a lavish estate in Princeton, New Jersey. Jose helped sign record deals with bands such as Duran Duran, The Eurythmics, and Menuendo. By 1985, Jose had risen to become the executive vice president and chief operating officer for RCA Records' worldwide operation. He was described by his colleagues as being a terribly aggressive boss and dealmaker, having no fear of breaking his word on the way to the top. Around this time, Kitty discovered that Jose had been engaging in numerous secret affairs, sending her into a deep and harrowing descent into depression, so severe that she even considered suicide. Jose was determined to raise his sons to be successful and to continue his legacy. When the brothers were young, Jose would dictate what they could eat, who they would spend time with, and even what to think. The stress of living up to Jose's expectations began to manifest in Lyle and Eric at an early age. Both brothers developed speech impediments, experienced frequent stomach aches, and exhibited teeth grinding. The brothers also developed awful tempers. 
Growing up, Eric and Lyle found solace and support in each other's company. Eric grew up worshipping Lyle. He used to tell his friends about his profound admiration for his older brother, though his friends struggled to comprehend the reasons behind this devotion, as they consider Lyle to be a troublesome child. Everyone noticed that Lyle and Eric shared a remarkably tight bond, despite their contrasting personalities. Lyle was seen as clever but unapproachable, whereas Eric was perceived as gentle and reserved. In 1979, the family was living in Paddington, outside of Princeton, New Jersey. Lyle and Eric were attending Princeton Day School, a prestigious and highly regarded private school. Jose had very high expectations for his sons. He wanted them to succeed in all aspects of life. The boys were excelling at sports, especially tennis, but they didn't seem interested in other school-related subjects. The teachers at the Princeton Day School felt that both Lyle and Eric had learning difficulties, yet Jose refused to acknowledge that his sons had any flaws. Teachers also noticed that the boys were far more immature than their peers. At the age of 14, Lyle was still playing with stuffed animals and occasionally wet his bed at night. Lyle had a modest academic performance. He told his friends his dream was to skip college and open a restaurant with financial help from his father. However, Jose wanted nothing less than an Ivy League education for Lyle. Lyle's first application to Princeton was rejected. He enrolled in a local community college, and a year later, in 1987, his second application to Princeton was accepted, not because of his grades, but more so because of his ethnicity and his ability to play tennis. In his first semester at the prestigious college, Lyle got suspended for a year for plagiarism. Jose not wanting his son to waste another year doing nothing, hired Lyle at live entertainment. At the time, Lyle confided to his friends that he was resented by all employees at live because he was the boss's son. In reality, no one liked Lyle because of his lack of effort, ignoring orders, always showing up late for work, and some days not showing up at all, just so he could go and play tennis. He got fired from live entertainment soon after. In February of 89, Lyle made a new friend called Donovan Goodrow. Donovan and Lyle had a lot of things in common and quickly became best friends. With Kitty and Jose living in California, it was hard for them to help Lyle with papers for his college degree, but Donovan willingly stepped in to write Lyle's papers in an effort to prevent him from failing. After Lyle returned to Princeton from his spring break, Donovan was accused of stealing from other students in the dorm. Lyle refused to defend Donovan and even insisted that he must be guilty. Donovan was expelled from Princeton and in his haste to leave, he forgot his wallet that contained his driver's license, social security card and other IDs. Eric grew up worshipping his brother. 
The two of them never seemed to fit at Princeton Day School. They refused to play with other kids other than each other. Like Lyle, Eric's grades were average at best. His mother Kitty completed much of Eric's homework for him. In his sophomore year in high school, Jose, Kitty and Eric moved to California. He got enrolled at Calabasas High School. Separated from his brother and the frequent comparisons made between the two of them at Princeton Date School, Eric found his own identity. Eric was one of the best tennis players at Calabasas High School. He was close friends with the captain of the tennis team, Craig Signorelli. Craig and Eric came up with the idea of writing a screenplay named Friends. The screenplay spanned 62 pages, unfolding a thrilling narrative about the son from a wealthy family who stumbles upon his parents' will, revealing a staggering inheritance of $157 million upon their debts. In a dark twist, the son resorts to murder in a ruthless pursuit of his parents' wealth, but ultimately he is murdered before being able to spend all the wealth he inherited. Little did Craig know, but part of this story would become reality. In July 1988, Eric and Lyle began breaking into friends' homes in Calabasas. To their surprise, they discovered substantial sums of cash and valuable jewelry that they were able to steal. This was an easy way to make some pocket money rather than ask Jose for money, who would just lecture the boys about hard work if they ever needed any money from him. The brothers stole more than $100,000. The sum was large enough to be classified as a felony offense called grand theft burglary. They were soon caught by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office when the stolen property was found in Eric's car. Jose was furious by the burglaries, and in a bet to keep his sons out of the jail, he hired one of the best criminal defense attorneys money can buy. The attorney was able to secure a deal with the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, where Eric would take full accountability for the crime, and Lyle would be acquitted of any wrongdoing. Since Eric was a juvenile with a clean record, the attorney was able to convince a judge to sentence Eric to community service and for the brothers to undergo psychological counseling. Lyle was a star tennis player and appeared destined to follow a career in business like his father's. Eric turned out to be even better at tennis, helped along by his father's obsessive intervention and ended up as a nationally ranked player in his age group. In 1986, Jose started a new job as the president of live entertainment in California. While waiting for the family mansion to be built, he rented a house in one of the most exclusive blocks in Beverly Hills. Big names like Michael Jackson and Elton John used to rent the 23-room Mediterranean-style mansion. Things were looking great for Jose and his family, he was worth more than $14 million, had a successful career in the entertainment business, his boys excelled in tennis, and he had a beautiful and supportive wife. However, all of that was about to change, 
and Jose and Kitty's American dream would be cut short by their own flesh and blood. On the 20th of August, 1989, the brothers entered their family mansion on Elm Drive with one goal, to kill their parents. They approached the TV room, where their parents were sleeping and fired their shotguns. They killed Jose first and then Kitty. The Menendez murders were brutal. 16 rounds left 45-year-old Jose and 47-year-old Kitty unidentifiable. After the slaughter, the brothers collected the empty shotgun shells from around their parents' bodies, changed clothes, got into their car and drove away to secure an alibi. They drive to Century City and buy tickets for the Batman movie, but they never see the movie. They then drive to Santa Monica to meet a friend for drinks at a cheesecake factory. On their way there, the brothers dispose of the guns. The plan fell apart when Eric became too emotional and couldn't stop crying. Lyle decided it would be best if they just went back to the house and pretended to discover the crime scene and then call 911. At 11.45, the brothers drove through the gates at 722 North Elm Drive, parked their car in the courtyard and entered the house through the front door. Two minutes later, Lyle picked up the phone and dialed 911. He screamed. They shot and killed my parents. I don't know, I didn't hear anything, I just came home. Eric, shut up, get away from them. The police showed up a few minutes later. Lyle and Eric come out of the house screaming and crying hysterically. Eric, the youngest, threw himself on the ground crying and shaking uncontrollably. Lyle tried to comfort his brother, but he was also traumatized by what he had witnessed and couldn't stop crying. The police officers feel pity for the brother. No one should have to see their murdered parents. The officers walked in the room and noticed the TV was still on. Who's scared now? <laughs> on the large sofa, Jose's body was slumped on one side. Part of the back of his head was missing. There was blood and brain matter on the walls and on the ceiling. Kitty's body was lying on the floor between the coffee table and the sofa. She was shot ten times. Fatal shot was the one directly to her face. The bodies looked unrecognizable. The officers were left speechless. They have seen a lot of homicides, but nothing quite as brutal. That night, Eric and Lyle were taken to Beverly Hills Police Headquarters for a first interview. They tell the officers that they've been to the movies and they came home a bit earlier than initially intended because they wanted to retrieve a fake ID that Eric had so they could be able to go out and buy some alcohol. The brothers told the police they saw the TV in the family room and went to see if their parents were awake, and that's when they discovered their bodies and called 911. Eric was still sobbing uncontrollably, while Lyle was more composed and able to answer questions. When asked who might be responsible for his parents' murder, Lyle tells the police that he believes the Mafia might be responsible. 
the police didn't consider the brothers to be involved and were treated as witnesses. Back at the crime scene, detectives were meticulously searching for evidence that could lead them to the killers. They soon realized the shotgun shell cases were missing from the scene. Besides the body and the shotgun pallets that were inside the bodies, there wasn't much evidence left behind at the crime scene. The detectives were baffled. At first glance, they thought this was a hit, maybe even the work of the mob. In the following days, the detectives talked to Jose's colleagues. They found out that Jose was not very light at work. It seemed that Jose made enemies everywhere he worked in the entertainment industry. That family and business were the center of his life. Kitty, on the other hand, was described as a lovely woman. No one had anything bad to say about her. But in her later years, she seemed deeply unhappy. Kitty found out that Jose had been engaging in numerous secret affairs, sending her into a deep and harrowing depression, so severe that at one point, she even considered suicide. She was utterly determined to make her marriage work, but Jose remained unfaithful. In the following days, the mob theory became less and less believable. The crime scene seemed way too brutal and personal for a mob hit. The fact that Kitty was also killed did not match the theory. Eric and Lyle tried hard to make themselves look like victims. The brothers rented out hotel rooms and bodyguards, saying they were scared a mob would go after them. They were wearing bulletproof vests everywhere they went. Soon after the murders, the brothers received $650,000 from Jose's personal life insurance policy. Following the murders, Lyle and Eric were keen to find out how much they inherited and how soon they could get their hands on the inheritance. The majority of the estate's assets comprised a house spanning 14 acres in Calabasas, which Jose and Kitty had acquired but never resided in, and the Beverly Hills mansion. After accounting for the outstanding loans on both properties, the value of Jose's real estate equaled $5.7 million. At the time of his passing, Jose held 330,000 shares of live entertainment, each trading at approximately $20 per share. In addition to this, there were Jose and Kitty's personal possessions and automobiles. The combined value of Jose and Kitty's estate amounted to $14 million. Following the subtraction of loans and taxes, Lyle and Eric would each inherit around $2 million. $2 million might seem like a lot of money, but the inheritance fell significantly short of what Lyle and Eric had anticipated. They initially expected to receive $90 million, firmly believing that Jose had stashed away $75 million in a clandestine Swiss bank account. The brothers soon started spending insane amounts of money. On August 24th, a day before their parents' funeral, Lyle walked into a Rolex shop and bought three Rolex watches worth more than $15,000. He also hired a tennis coach for $60,000 a year, in addition to thousands of dollars in gambling losses. Adjusted for inflation, 
The boys spent over $200,000 before their parents were even buried. The next day, Lyle and Eric orchestrated an intricate memorial service in honor of Jose and Kitty. There were more than 200 people in attendance. The boys, dressed in fine black suits, turned up an hour late to the service. Eric seems to have been crying. His face was red and swollen, while Lyle maintained a composed and collected demeanor. People began to pick up on the fact that the boys didn't seem particularly distraught about their parents' murders. At first, the boys seemed to be grieving, but Lyle started making jokes about having to fill up his father's shoes. On the 28th of August, a traditional church service was held at the University Chapel in Princeton. Lyle delivered a half-hour speech, reflecting on the significance of Jose and Kitty in his life. Eric, overwhelmed with grief, was unable to address the audience. The brothers decided to move back to their parents' house. They rented new furniture to replace the bloodied one from the television room and pretended that nothing ever happened. In his role as the CEO of Live Entertainment, Jose Menendez received an annual base salary of $500,000, with a maximum bonus of up to $850,000. Additionally, Life insurance policies were also part of his compensation package. Live Entertainment took out two life insurance policies on Jose. A Keyman policy, worth $15 million with the company named as the beneficiary. And the second one, worth $5 million with the beneficiary to be named by him. A few days after the murders, Lyle and Eric, accompanied by two uncles, met with officials at Live Entertainment at the company's headquarters to go over Jose's financial situation. The boys soon learned that the $5 million life insurance had not gone into effect because Jose had failed to take the mandatory medical evaluation, thinking that the physical evaluation he underwent was applicable to both the $15 million policy and the $5 million policy but in fact, it only applied to the Keeman policy. The boys were extremely disappointed. They expected to leave the meeting with a $5 million payout. This did not stop the boys from spending lavishly. A few weeks after the murders, Lyle decided he needed a new car. The red Alfa Romeo, a high school graduation from his parents that he had never been fond of, had to go. It was soon replaced by its substantially pricier Cray Porsche 911 Carrera, which carried a price tag of $64,000. He also bought a restaurant in Princeton for $550,000 and renamed it Mr. Buffalo's. His long-term plans for the restaurant were to turn it into a franchise. He started a new company named Menendez Investment Enterprises and he made his friends from Princeton officers in the company. 
Lyle rented out an office for $3,000 a month in a shopping mall in Princeton and furnished it with luxurious furniture. To no one's surprise, the company never really took off. The employees were young and lacked any experience in business. The brothers indulged in extravagant vacations, during which they lavishly spent their dead parents' money. Eric was also spending a lot of money. He purchased a brand new Jeep Wrangler. He also hired a private tennis coach. He bought himself his own Rolex watch. He lost astonishing amounts of money through gambling. His original plan was to continue his studies at UCLA, but after the murders, he decided it would be best for him to go and compete in tennis tournaments in the Middle East. His dream was to become a professional tennis player. Him and his coach began to travel extensively, staying at the most expensive hotels and spending whatever Eric thought he needed to sharpen his game. A few months after the murders, Lyle and Eric were thinking of moving into a new penthouse that would have cost them around $900,000 just for the deposit. But they soon realized they could not afford it. Instead, they leased two high-priced condos in Marina del Rey, where they threw countless parties. The Menendez brothers' dreams of lavish spending of their inherited fortune will soon come crashing down. The captivating saga of Lyle and Eric Menendez takes a darker turn as we explore the legal battles, the secrets, and the twists that lay ahead. Join us in part two, The Menendez Brothers, Murder in Beverly Hills, where we will continue the story of how the Menendez murders became one of the most famous criminal cases of the late 20th century due to its mix of family drama, Hollywood connections, dramatic testimony, and the coverage provided by cable TV. As court proceedings unfolded, there was no doubt that Lyle and Eric had killed their parents. Why they did it? was another story.